Welcome, neighbor, to Folk U Radio, Folk University's talk show, taking old school viral. I'm your host, Manda O'Fox Gillespie. It's embarrassing, all the stupid things I can think of to think about. Is there anything that could really bring Today's episode is produced in collaboration with Cortez Currents, What's Current on Cortez and Beyond. Today we ask, what would it take to create affordable year-round housing options for Cortez? This is the first of a three-part series called Finding Home, about a tiny community's quest to provide housing options. That community is our very own Cortez Island. And today we will look at what it has taken and what it will take to provide affordable year-round rentals on this little island. Cortez is a small, remote community in the Salish Sea. And like many small, isolated communities, our community has become a destination location for visitors, those seeking investment properties or second and third homes, In other words, our economy has begun to be shaped by economies much larger than our own. Throughout this series, we will examine what resources, tools, and ideas are available to communities in regard to creating housing options, and which of these are accessible and practical practical here. One tool recently made available to our community is BC Housing Funding. How common is it for small, isolated communities to get this funding? As we will hear later on from a guest, not very. I also reached out to get more specific stats from the BC Housing Research Center on this very question, and they told me, get back in touch after the new cabinet has been formed. However, the Ministry of Municipal Affairs and Housing did issue this comment earlier in preparation for this series. We know that for many years, communities across the province, including small island communities, have been facing a shortage of affordable housing. Our government is making the largest investment in affordable housing in B.C. history, including thousands of mixed-income affordable homes already underway around the province, with more to come. Through the Building B.C. Community Housing Fund's first intake, launched in 2018, we are currently working with nonprofits to build new affordable rental homes on Cortez Island, four homes, Hornby Island, 26 homes, and Salt Spring Island, 80 homes. The province has also recently issued a second call for proposals under the Community Housing Fund, and communities are encouraged to apply for more housing to meet their needs. So that was a quote from the Municipal Affairs and Housing Ministry. Today, 
I welcome into the studio Sandra Wood from the Housing Committee of the Senior Society. We will also have clips from a conversation that I did earlier in the week with Ian Scott from Ian Scott Planning Services, who has been the consultant helping the Housing Committee of the Senior Society navigate the complex territory of BC housing, as I was mentioning above. Welcome, Sandra. Thank you so much for being here today with us. Thank you, Amanda. It's wonderful to be here. I was hoping you would start by telling us a bit about yourself and your role with the Housing Committee. Yes, I'd be happy to. I am officially the housing coordinator for the Senior Society, and I've been living on Cortez full-time for the past 14 years, together with my husband, Philip, and uh, he's been a long-time property owner. He's been here uh, over 30 years, so I feel like we're a part of the community, and we're really wanting to make a difference and contribute in our own unique way. And uh, prior to moving to Cortez full time, um, I was living on Bowen Island as one of the many seasonal rental um, tenants, if you will, or residents. And I was lucky enough to find a property that I could rent 10 months of the year. So from September Labor Day long weekend until July 1st when I would vacate so the owners of that home could have their summer holidays there. And I did that for five years and I loved it. I was lucky that I could go away and have my summer holidays when the owners returned uh, to their place. But I got a taste of what that's like and how much energy it takes to move in and out, completely pack up your life twice a year. And I saw that happening here on Cortez when I arrived. And I was really lucky that the Senior Society um, offered me a job to help them with their first six cottages uh, back in 2009. So that's where I got to know them and um, luckily got to see firsthand the power of what a nonprofit can do to actually solve a housing problem. And so I feel like I got my education from the Senior Society. I'm really happy that I've been able to come back 10 years later to help them now on this expansion they're doing. Um, I wanted to say that part of my personal um, passion for housing, when I really look back at it, um, I grew up in family housing back in Edmonton, Alberta. My parents are immigrants to Canada. They came from Holland. And um, we were very fortunate to find affordable family housing uh, back when I was about five years old. And we were there until I was 13. And I loved it. It was just so amazing to be able to be in a, in a community setting with lots of other kids and lots of other parents and within walking distance to the school. And I realized that that was not only a great foundation for me as a kid, feeling safe and um, feeling free, to Rome. But I also later realized that that gave my parents the chance to save up um, a down payment to work towards buying their own home. And so um, that gave them the opportunity. And my mom is still living in that same house that that they bought. Um, she's now 88, living still on her own, very independent. And I hope that I'll be like that when I reach her age. Um, but I realize that's some of the motivation of some of my life experience that makes me passionate about this project on Cortez. So you can tell, can you tell us a little bit about um, 
the the now two projects, uh, just a, a general kind of like there are two projects most of us have heard that are being that have grown out of this impulse um, that the seniors society has had to provide housing. And then maybe segue into introducing who our next guest is going to be, uh, Ian Scott, and and who he is and why we've brought him into the project. I'd be happy to. Um, so right now, you're right. We are working on two projects, one being the expansion of the Seniors Village. So in addition to the six cottages that have been there for 10 years and happily filled with the tenants who are there, um, we've had a waiting list of over 16 people waiting to get into those six cottages. So um, we've been working on an expansion in partnership with BC Housing to add four more cottages in the Seniors Village, and that will provide housing for people over the age of 55. And it means we'll have a total of 10 units in that project. We're currently at uh, over 50% complete construction on those four cottages. And we are planning to be finished by December, early December, planning to have tenants moving in before Christmas. So that's going to be a nice gift to those future tenants. And then in addition to that, we have... um, purchased the adjacent property. It's 51 acres right next door to the Seniors Village and south of the fire hall. And that is a 51-acre parcel that the Seniors Society is holding the title on. And that is a legacy for future housing that will be for all ages, including more seniors housing. We envision perhaps 20% of the those future houses will be for seniors. But in addition to that, we wanted to be able to house single people as well as families and people of all ages. So that's the second project. It's called Rainbow Ridge. And uh, at the moment, we're at the stage of still pre-development planning and uh, gathering all of the cost information so that we can put a really strong proposal in to BC Housing for their January 15th intake. And that is the reason that we brought in Ian Scott. He's actually been a part of our staff uh, for almost the past two years. And um, perhaps it's best to let him introduce himself, but he brings the much needed uh, knowledge of real world uh, affordable building projects and and partnership with BC Housing in other communities. So he's bringing that expertise to Cortez. So here we will hear a clip from Ian Scott where he talks uh, a little bit more about his own background, who he is, and who he is on this project. Uh, who, who am I? I'm, I'm Ian Scott. I'm a, uh, by training, a professional planner. Um, so I've got a background in environmental studies and geography and, and mapping um, and then I did my master's in urban and regional planning at the uh, University of Wisconsin-Madison. I did grow up, though, in Victoria, B.C., so I'm a, I'm a coastal person. Um, and I uh, started off my career in the world of uh, community development. I worked for a nonprofit group called Ecotrust Canada uh, and then decided as I was getting increasingly into the world of, of planning that I wanted a a better you know educational foundation i was able to um, get some funding to go to uh, the us and, and do my my schooling there 
Um, and then I came back to BC with a determination to work in, in local government uh, because I do see a really important role for local government in, you know, building our, our communities. Um, and if you look at sort of a focus more on localism, uh, you know, in, 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 in a theoretical point of view anyway, local government is, is really well placed to do that. Um, and I spent six years in the Victoria area working for different local governments and decided ultimately both, both for personal and kind of professional reasons that uh, I needed to do something uh, different. Uh, I started at least as a consultant working just part-time um, so I could be home with my young son a little bit more um, and wanted and so went out into professional practice on my own. I do work for both private and non-profit developers. Uh, and so, you know, effectively I'm working for a, uh, a non-profit developer in the Cortez Island, uh, uh, Cortez Island Senior Society. And then also now the creation of, you know, the Cortez um, Community Housing Society. So I'm really involved in all aspects of both projects. I'm what BC Housing likes to call um, the development consultant. Um, in other realms, you might call me a project manager, um, uh, but they like the term development consultant. So I work for the um, the client, um, being the Cortez Island Senior Society, um, and I am, you know, an interface with BC Housing. Um, but then also as a planner um, and somebody who's worked in the development industry, I'm the interface with. Uh, Strathcona Regional District. I'm an interface with um, the designers, the engineers, the lawyers, the arborists, the surveyors, the geotechnical expert, the environmental specialist. So I do a lot of uh, assisting with hiring of people. Um, you know, I, I manage the budgets and make sure we're not, um, you know, spending money unwisely. Uh, we're putting out RFPs or call for proposals to get good value on, on the money. Um, and ultimately, it's trying to deliver a capital project on budget at a budget that is acceptable to all of the people involved. Up until recently, not. So that was Ian Scott, the development consultant, uh, sounds like, for this uh, housing committee. Um, I hope I've gotten that more or less right. Uh, Sandra, can you tell us who else is on the team? Yes, we have an amazing team of uh, locals, mainly people who live here or have property here. So a few people that you'll recognize on the housing team are Aaron Ellingson, who represents the community forest, and he's also a local miller. We've got Andrea Fisher, who's the uh, campus director from Hollyhock, and she totally understands the requirement and the need for having uh, housing for staff in this community. We've got Bill Weaver as our um, movie man, making these incredible videos, capturing the, the project at various stages of development. We've got Carol London, who is a retired accountant, keeping an eye on our finances, and uh, David Rousseau as an architectural consultant to this project. And then there's also Elizabeth Anderson, long-term resident of Cortez. She not only is helping um, us on the housing committee, but she is a liaison back to the Senior Society because she's a director with them on their board as well. And um, rounding off our team is uh, Ruth Riddell, who 
uh, many of you will remember from the BC, from our ferries here on Cortez, but now she owns property both on Salt Spring and Cortez, so she goes between our two islands. And, uh, and Valerie Wernett, who is an amazing writer and editor who's helping us with our publicity. Um, so they are all volunteers, members of the Housing Committee and the newly formed Housing Society. Um, in addition to that, we've got a core member of members of staff, and, um, and that includes myself and Ian Scott. And on top of that, we've got Haley Newell as our housing administrator, and we've got Kathy Winter as our bookkeeper. So it's a powerful team of people with a lot of talent, and they are your friends and neighbors and people who really understand, I think, what it is to live in this community and, um, and what it is to give back to the community. Thank you, Sandra. Um, that is a talented group of people who I trust to carry this project forward. So why housing and why here? People talk about the housing crisis in many of our urban centers. In fact, places like Vancouver have gotten international attention for the housing crisis that they're suffering. What does a housing crisis look like in a place like Cortez or in these other kind of small, isolated communities? Um, and why did uh, this group of people get involved with that? Housing shortage on Cortez Island is um, unique but is very much shared by the other islands up and down the coast. And what we have seen is the islands have become um, recreational property for many people who live in the in bigger cities and even people who live out of the country. So they'll have a summer home here, but it's only occupied for a few months out of the year. And so we've always been really lucky that locals have been able to get seasonal rentals usually in the off-season at an affordable rate. And, um, and that has been wonderful. But as the internet has uh, made it more and more possible to do vacation rentals by owner and doing um, short-term rentals um, for more than just the summertime, so people wanting to uh, people wanting to get away from the cities for Christmas holidays and spring breaks and other times, um, that then starts reducing the availability of rentals here on the island for locals. Um, on top of that, even though we have a lot of land on Cortez, undeveloped land, um, yet our zoning basically makes the developable property um, into acreages. So the, really the smallest acreage you can buy here is about two and a half acres and it goes up to hundreds of acres. And our zoning basically allows you to have one house and one cottage on that property. So you end up with a lot of land, but very few actual dwellings. And on top of that, um, you have the issue of people, I was talking earlier about seasonal homelessness, that we end up having a lot of people who are homeless in the summertime and end up having to go camping or, or, or share property with another friend or go 
couch surfing or basically share a room in somebody else's home. So there's a lot of moving, coming and going, toing and froing. And um, that just takes up, sucks up a huge amount of energy that I think could be better served by putting into this community, whether it's for, through jobs, through employment, or through volunteer time and helping the community in other ways. So that is a huge cost to this community, having that many people constantly on the move. Um, but the other thing I wanted to mention is we basically don't have options as far as apartments to rent. We don't have condos to buy. We don't have suburbs to move into to get uh, to find a more affordable housing. On Cortez Island, you basically, if you can't find suitable housing, you have to move away from Cortez. And that certainly impacts um, a lot of our elders, people who can no longer manage a big acreage property on their own. And they'd like to stay here because they have friends and family and community organizations that they value. Um, but they're basically forced to leave the island. And that's a huge loss of knowledge, of volunteer time, of, of friends, of community. It, it really unravels our community. So we're looking to find ways um, to provide rental options for those people who would like to downsize and would still like to stay in the community. So that's a really key part of um, providing seniors housing options on the island. And I think the other thing that people might not understand who live in the cities is um, you can be pretty confident in the city that your recreational facilities, like your you know your swimming pools and uh, and halls and things will stay open and you're pretty well guaranteed your schools are going to stay open because you've got this incredible tax base of everybody who lives in your city uh, paying their property taxes and and paying their provincial sales tax and things like that that contributes to the to the budget that your city has to invest in your social infrastructure um, but on Cortez Island, our social infrastructure is created by nonprofits and charities. And so if we don't have volunteers and if we don't have people donating their time and their money and sometimes materials, um, then things unravel. And that could mean, for example, on Cortez, that if we don't have enough young families having children, that we will not have a school. And not only will we not have a school for those children to attend, but that means all the jobs for the teachers, for the administrative staff, for the support and management staff, um, those are lost as well. And those are really important parts of our economy. Um, and that's um, how it's all really connected. Like housing is so deeply connected to the fabric of our community and um, the the facilities that we love and enjoy, as well as the economy that is so important to um, sustaining us. Thank you. I still remember once hearing David Rousseau talk about when he first moved to the island, which was, you know, a number of years ago, I believe more than 20, that he was able to work on the island for a number of years and then afford land and then work a couple more years and afford to build a house and how by his calculations it was something like you know 50 years or more at an island rate that it would take just to be able to get land if you could even find it um uh 
You mean now? Yes. Yeah. So now how um, like it, it was almost impossible and it would be way more than 100 years, I think is what he said, before you'd be able to afford an average house with land on Cortez earning an island salary. And I thought that really struck me because that's not 100 years. That's not, you know, that's just in one person's working lifetime. Um, you know, so one, you know, that that difference changed. And I think we've all watched recently as some of our houses have been sold off um, to speculative buyers. And so this was the second thing that I've really, that this show is not going into depth at, but I was looking at as far as tools go um, and uh, that rural and isolated communities have. And I, um, one of the tools that we do not have right now are ways to uh, tax speculative or foreign investor buying. Um, so one of the tools that we do have that we're looking at more specifically today to provide affordable rentals is BC housing assistance. So Ian Scott, who we heard from earlier, the development consultant on this project, I was talking to him a little bit about the BC housing assistance. And what I wanted to hear or know about from him um, was this particular form of assistance that is available through BC Housing, how common is it for communities the size of Cortez, small and isolated, rural, to get this kind of funding in order to create affordable projects? Um, so I want you to hear what he said, and then he'll talk a little bit more about um, the difficulties and the opportunities that small communities like ours have when it comes to providing this form of housing. Up until recently, not very common. Um, I think, um, you know, the, the kudos to the Senior Society. Uh, back in 2009, they did receive um, funding for a um, you know for the first six units of the seniors village um, I know for example there has been housing on Salt Spring uh, for a number of years um, but I know many of the other you know islands you know whether the northern Discovery Islands or the or the Gulf Islands don't really have much you know affordable housing I also work in Tofino and there's four units of seniors housing there and they've been struggling with a uh, an affordable housing challenge in Tofino for decades, and you know they've yet to be successful in kind of getting that kind of investment. Part of that is a um, is is related to the fact that in the 60s and 70s into the 80s, there was a lot more affordable housing funding available in BC and across the country, um, but it really wasn't directed for the most part to rural communities. It was more to urban communities, um, and I think the second thing that's happened uh, is with you know, changing economy in, in coastal BC and the desirability of the coast as a place for people to live and travel. Um, and also, I think, an increasing number of people who have um, the ability to work both remotely but also to afford second homes that we've seen, you know, places like Cortez and, and other islands and small communities become more and more desirable places for people to live driving up prices beyond what locals can afford whether it comes to rent or purchase and so i think we're at a point where the need for affordable housing in in small rural communities is quite a bit more um, drastic uh, and important than it ever was before 
and maybe just a follow-up to that is I think um, the when you look at you know the level of activity in different communities around the province that you, know, you can see applications coming from communities of all sizes um, you know for this BC housing funding because I think every community is struggling with the same thing and to different degrees um, you, you know which is that uh, housing prices you know are not set at a rate that everybody can afford um, and so uh, you know it requires some government intervention and support to deliver housing um, you know to a certain segment of the population um, and that segment of the population that needs that support um, the evidence shows is getting bigger and bigger you know it used to be people really sort of below uh, you know kind of what some people might call a low income cutoff or a, a, you know a much lower income bracket uh, but now increasingly you know the evidence shows that you know even those you know folks may, making you know more moderate incomes depending on the community you know also need you know that that support uh, or else they're, they're really stretched you know to make ends meet i think the reality is that um in my observation is that housing has kind of gotten away from us a little bit um as as a canadian society um, and we're only just starting to realize that, um, and I'm not quite sure what that means for the next, you know, few decades, you know, but what my, what my observation is, you know, based on working in this industry is that construction prices have, you know, far outpaced um, inflation um, in terms of uh, what it costs to build a home now compared to, 15, 20 years ago, or what it costs to build an apartment building compared to 15, 20 years ago. Um, and then there's also combined with certain factors around uh, how capital, you know, invests in different kinds of um, housing and products. Um, for a long time in Canada, especially in the 70s, the federal government gave quite a strong tax break if you were building uh, rental housing. Uh, they've never done that again um, and so that's a problem for stimulating just generalized you know rental apartment um, growth um, we've also had we had a backlash in the 60s and 70s in places like Victoria um, and I think it's extended out into you know rural communities against density um, and so you know like at Rainbow Ridge and the seniors village you know there's more units per smaller area than um, you know, than our, than people on Cortez are, you know, are typically used to. But, but if you were to build a private rental project, you probably, you know, are really going to struggle to do that even in the townhouse. Well, to do that even in the townhouse form that you would need to have, you know, a, a small, three or four story apartment building to make the numbers work on a place like Cortez to deliver rents that people could afford. Um, unfortunately, that doesn't necessarily align with people's expectations about where they want to live. Um, and so we, we have these, we have both kind of a cultural and then a, you know, a, a structural issue at play um, around trying to develop more rental housing, you know, for people. Um, in whether it's on Cortez Island or Camel River or or or, or wherever, um, that there's just um, yeah there's just some fundamental dynamics in the system that 
um, you know, we're struggling with. Um, and I don't see easy solutions because it's now sort of embedded in the system around um, just the costs, you know, to, to develop things. You know, so we are, you know, we're getting through BC housing uh, at Seniors Village, uh, you know, a $100,000 grant per unit. So $400,000 total, um, plus some annual subsidy to allow the rents to be uh, at the level that they will be, you know, for, you know, that's the, basically a 60-year program. So rents will rise over time, but that, that's where their funding, you know, comes in. Um, and just to, as an illustration, you know, 10 years ago, the senior society got quite a bit less than that to deliver similar rents. And so that's just an example of how, how costs have, have changed in, in that period of time. Now, some of that difference does is accounted for the fact that, um, you know, initially there was a lot more volunteer effort that went into that, um, you know, six unit build. Um, but uh, um, the senior society realized after that 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 wasn't a sustainable way for them you know, to continue to build new housing, that it was it was such a mammoth, you know, task, um, as well as BC Housing have really tightened up on the way that they manage their housing uh, and their programs, and and to have it be so volunteer based uh, wasn't wasn't going to align with their with their program. Fundamentally, why is this? Is Amanda O Fox Gillespie with Folk U Radio? We are. That was just Ian Scott, development consultant on two new projects here on Cortez, the senior village expansion and the possible Rainbow Ridge development. Um, So we have in the studio with us, Sandra Wood. Um, Sandra, that update was really interesting. We've heard a little bit from you and from Ian Scott about the need for more housing options in our community. And we've heard from, in this last clip from Ian about how housing has gotten away from us in Canada, and in particular, the challenges to small communities to access the kind of funding needs in this changing uh, economic climate uh, in order to provide any sort of housing. So here we are. (laughs) And somehow amidst this, we are finishing four new units on the Seniors Village uh, expansion. So can you tell us a little bit more um, about that expansion, where we are now? Um, And and we heard that people will be moving in hopefully by December, uh, by Christmas. So what's that going to look like and where are we going from here? Well, we are at this moment, about 50% complete with the actual construction. So we have uh, the windows and doors are in. We're at the lockup stage where we've been um, getting the drywall ready for painting, which is happening this week. And after that, we're going to be on the interior finishing stage of uh, getting in all of the fixtures and the cupboards and counters and... uh, um, those kinds of details. So we're really on the home stretch. And the great thing is that we've got the roofs on um, with the downspouts before the rain arrived. So we're really grateful for that. Um, and very grateful for our local team of carpenters and uh, and helpers and first aid attendants, as well as plumbers and excavators and the crew, the local Cortez crew, who have been uh, working really hard full time since the middle of May um, to get this project built on time 
and on budget. And all of that is really made possible by this community supporting the rezoning of that property. That property was um, originally um, zoned to allow a maximum of six cottages. And we had to come back asking to expand it to add four more rather than uh, doing anything else with the remaining land that was part of that two and a half acre parcel. Um, And for those of you who know that lot, it also houses the uh, health center, which is a really important community facility. So um, that was another example of, you know, a nonprofit coming back to the community saying, here's an idea. We know there's a need. There's 16 people on a waiting list. Uh, We've still got land. We can build four more units. Um, Here's our proposal, but we need your approval at the public hearing to allow us to do that. And luckily that was approved uh, more than a year ago. And, um, and that helped then, that's the kind of the, one of the keys that you have to put in the lock to get the BC housing funding approved. And that is you have to have the rezoning approved in addition to having blueprints and have all of the engineering uh, details um, completed and a budget that is really solid that you can get a contractor to actually bid a fixed price to deliver that project. So um, so those are some of the steps we've been through and we have been able so far to dis- demonstrate to BC Housing that we know what we're doing and I think it's been a really great um you know, miniature version of basically proving that this team is capable of delivering a project and following all the new rules and guidelines that BC Housing has in place and um, and that we have the capacity to go forward and build a much larger project uh, on Rainbow Ridge, which ideally uh, will be large enough to hold 20, 20 um, new units. So... Uh, I I want you to talk a little bit about that because at the beginning I read this quote, this official statement that I got from the Municipal Affairs and Housing, and they talked about um, this this sort of last round that they did, making a funding effort um, for the first time in a while towards some of these more remote communities like ours. And as part of that funding effort, they uh, funded these four new units on Cortez and 26 on Hornby and 80 on Salt Spring. So, um, you know, everyone I talk to practically on Cortez is on the waiting list for, for, uh, a year round rental. Um, and four units we've already, like those are all, I mean, sold out is not the right word, but I know that there's a long waiting list for those four units. So I, I hear there's going to be another round. Um, this is what the BC Housing Affairs um, people said. There's going to be another round of intakes for little communities like ours. Um, and you've hinted that we are gearing up for that. So I want to know kind of everything that you can tell us about how we are going to take advantage of this next opportunity, how likely it is um, that it will come again uh, where the Rainbow Ridge planning process is, and um, and then what we need to do for for rezoning, um, as you called it, the key to unlock that funding. Yes, you're absolutely right, 
Manda, that we have a very long waiting list. Um, in addition to the people who would like to get into the seniors village, um, we officially have a waiting list of over 130 people now waiting for these um, 24 new units, basically, the four new units at the Seniors Village and the 20 on Rainbow Ridge. And um, that's a lot of people planning and searching and hoping and praying that this project is going to go ahead. Um, so I want everybody to know that we did apply to build these 20 units on Rainbow Ridge um, two years ago in the 2018 intake for BC Housing. And what we decided to do is we did a two-pronged approach. We applied both for the Seniors Village and Rainbow Ridge simultaneously as two separate projects. Um, and the great news is that the Seniors Village was selected and, we, and we're now where we are, almost complete. Um, and in addition to that, BC Housing said they really liked our concept for Rainbow Ridge. And they put us on what they call their, their B project file. So it's like a plan B. They basically um, were willing to give us pre-development funding so that we could do our due diligence on that property. Because we had only just purchased it. We had no idea at that stage of um, the soil structure, um, the amount of water that is under it. We didn't know anything about the, um, the topology of the land. It hadn't been recently surveyed. Um, we didn't know about the ecological and environmental features on the property. So basically, BC Housing said, go away. Go do more research and design and consult your community as far as what they want to see built. And so that is what we've done. We've had uh, two community workshops to help plan the design of those houses on Rainbow Ridge. We have done, we've had all of these engineers and consultants um, help us map out the best location for the wastewater system, um, the um, volume and capacity of the water system. We're at the stage of um, doing high-level designs and frameworks for the stormwater um, management for the rain gardens, and um, a whole lot more as far as figuring out how to get power um, onto the site. And um, all of these things, like when you start thinking of the infrastructure as far as the drinking water, the wastewater, the power, and the distribution of all of that to 20 more homes that are, sit that are basically on a raw piece of property right now, um, that's an am amazing amount of planning and design you need to do so that you can accurately budget and say, this is how much it's going to cost and be able to get a contractor who will say, yes, I can build it for that. And, and I will contractually agree to a fixed price. So that is what we have been busy doing. It's been a huge amount of work. And um, we're at the stage now of reapplying for the next intake, which the deadline is January the 15th of 2021, which is not that far away. And we are at wrapping up those plans to reapply for that round of funding. And if we are lucky enough to be chosen, um, that would mean that we could potentially start breaking ground in 2021 
And, you know, best case scenario, we could potentially be having people living there as early as 2022. So it is totally possible. It is totally doable. And what it really needs next is the rezoning approval that will allow us to put 20 housing units on the northernmost six acres out of that 51-acre property. So can you talk just a little bit more about um, how you guys are ramping up for this next round of zoning approval? And and weren't we going to get zoning approval in in the spring? I am assuming that got pushed off because of COVID, but can you give us sort of a little bit of update on on where we are just specifically with zoning. Um, I think now everyone listening can understand how important zoning is. Um, I love the way you referred to it as um, as the as the as the key that's going to unlock this funding potential. Um, so uh, explain a little bit more about what is going forward now. Yes, Manda, your memory is correct. We applied uh, for, we put in our application for rezoning to the SRD a year ago. It was October of 2019, and we had hoped that it would already have gone to public hearing. Um, But because of COVID happening when it did, our spring public hearing got postponed. Um, basically now we're at the stage where it's going to happen on October the 15th, which is just about three weeks from now. Um, so I can give you details on that. It's going to be, uh, Thursday, October the 15th at 2 p.m. at Manson's Hall. And, um, the important thing to know is we are still, still adhering to, COVID protocols. That means a maximum of 22 people who want to speak um, can do so at the hall, but we're encouraging everybody to um, participate remotely. So you can, there will be phone numbers you can call into as well as I think maybe a Zoom um, uh, tech Technology, a way that you can call in on your computer and participate remotely so that you can hear what is being presented and you can hear the other speakers and you can choose to speak yourself. Um, in addition to that, because the public hearing is really an opportunity for those who want to speak, uh, it's not really a forum for asking questions. So we are planning, Ian and I will have an open house just before the public hearing. Um, So on the same day, October the 15th, the Thursday, but from 11 o'clock in the morning till 1230 in the afternoon at Manson's Hall, we will have up all of the posters, all of the site plans, the unit designs, um, and everything will be on the walls so that people can come in and take a look at that information. They can ask us questions um, in that format prior to the public hearing. So that's going to be happening. And in addition to that, people can look anytime on our website, the CortezCommunityHousing.org website. There is a tab called Studies, and and there you'll find all kinds of reports from the housing surveys that have been done over the years, including our eco report, the environmental assessment, our hydrologist's report, our wastewater design, um, most recently our stormwater framework. Um, and you can see our 
letter to the SRD as far as the actual rezoning application is there so people can look at it, read it. And in addition to that, our site plans and unit plans are accessible there. So all of this information is online on our website right now. And again, I'll just repeat, that's cortezcommunityhousing.org. Look under the studies tab and you'll find all of, of those reports available for your reading pleasure. Um, and the, the other thing I wanted to make sure I mentioned is um, obviously the public hearing is happening during business hours. And so for all those people who are working during the day that cannot attend, um, then I would also want everybody to know that you can send in your letters of support um, immediately from now until the day of, I should say the day before the public hearing. Your emails and hard copy written letters need to, um, need to be sent in to the SRD so that they have them as part of the package that will go to the four directors who will be making the decision on our behalf for this rezoning application. And so I wanted to mention for people who want to send an email, like a letter of support by email, you send it to planning at srd.ca. So that will take it, well, that will get it to the planning department at the SRD, and they will then include that for the directors to read as part of our rezoning application. Um, and the other option is to send your letter in hard copy. You can send it in the mail to uh, SRD at 990 Cedar Street in Campbell River. And their postal code is V like Vancouver, 9W like water, 7Z like zebra, 8. And again, address that to the planning department. And um, they will be assembling and collecting all the letters of support. And your last chance to get your letter of support in is I think you actually have to attend the public hearing and drop it off in person. But ideally, you want to get it there before the public hearing so that it's part of the package for the directors to pre-read before the hearing. Thank you. So many options. Um, and I guess this maybe is one of the benefits, uh, lots of downsides to COVID, but maybe one of the benefits is that we are now creating different ways for people to be um, involved and to get their voices heard. So I talked um, in my interview previously with Ian Scott, who you'll remember is the development consultant on this project um, of both the Seniors Village expansion and also the planning involved with the Rainbow Ridge. And he's been involved with lots of uh, BC housing funded projects. And I wanted to find out from him a little bit about the uh, ways that we can use the design of, of this project, in particular Rainbow Ridge, in order to uh, minimize the costs of construction and also to minimize the environmental impacts. Um, in particular, I know that people have wanted to make sure that we were providing water and septic in such a way that it was going to have you know, no impact or maybe even a positive impact on the lakes and surrounding environment. So Ian Scott uh, talked in a little bit more detail um, about how some of those things are going to be achieved. 
fundamentally why is you know is, is density a more affordable way to achieve housing um, well there, there's a couple things one is um, if you have multiple units in a building you have less outside walls um, and outside walls cost more to build than inside walls so that's option number one that's why an apartment building is going to be a better form a more like per unit cost is going to be lower on an apartment building than it will be on a townhouse than it will be on a you know a single family home because you have less outside walls to build it also turns out is more energy efficient the more the fewer outside walls you have the more energy efficient per unit you have a building to be so there's both an environmental advantage and a and a cost advantage um, the second aspect to that is the smaller your building footprint, the less you have to put in foundations, which is a you know a cost to the building. It also means a smaller environmental footprint because you're disturbing less area. Because even though you might say, well, okay, you know, townhouses that you know they still have a fairly small impact. Again, with every outside wall, you need a certain distance of you know excavation and distance bef- before your trees, and for fire smart reasons. You know, you always have a, an area around your building. So the more you can make your building footprint smaller, the less area you have to, you know, um, um, you know, disturb through the process. And disturbing has an environmental impact, but also has a cost impact. Because the smaller the area that we excavate and 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 clear, the less that you know is is to the budget. Um, same thing goes with. You know, um, you know, we we've been very upfront about the fact that the northern cluster, you know, is, is strategically located in part to be near walking distance and you know close to Manson's Landing to allow people to more affordably live and not use their car and those kind of things as much. Uh, but it also means you know we have to foot the bill for building a, a road and and services, whether it's electrical lines or water line, you know, not water lines, but you know, in this case, electrical lines and, and, and a road surface into the project. And the further in to the property we put that, the more cost that is to the project. So that's, that's you know, and if you're spreading out your development, all those things, whether it's driveways or paths, all are longer and all cost more. So having things clustered together, um, you know, has both, like I said, an environmental benefit, but also then this cost benefit. Um so that those those are really the main things, and then the other thing is to try to build simple buildings. You know, so um, simple but yet very energy efficient buildings, and so that means you know really well insulated walls, but it also means being you know modest in in window sizes, which lose energy very quickly, but also cost. It means you know trying to keep your building form simple, so kind of lots of corners or fancy you know bay windows and different things. Those all add cost to a building, so you try to just build a simple building, simple energy efficient and, and really durable is is your is your best way to go so so in terms of how we're handling water and sewer at rainbow ridge so i'll start with water so what we did with water is um uh before um the property was purchased um the senior society did some due diligence work to try to understand what might be the water resource there um, and I think most critically is not only might you have enough water on the site, but are you in a neighborhood where your use of water is going to have a, a really negative impact on others? Um, and and so we, they and we were assured through that process that um, that was more than likely not the case because of some of the other developments that have gone in, like the Siskin Lane uh, um, 
the Siskin Lane project, um, as well as some work that the previous owner had done on the property. Uh, at the same time, we then w- went the next step, which was to do a hydrogeological assessment. So that's a high, hiring somebody who's an expert at the sort of water resources underneath um, their surface in the ground. Um, and and what that assessment has revealed is that there is, even though there are some properties that have kind of these shallower wells that are at sometimes not, you know, the, the greatest or they, you know, they struggle a little bit with, with how um, viable they are year round, that underneath the Rainbow Ridge property, there's a really deep, uh, and quite abundant aquifer that actually seems to be hydrologically connected to Hague Lake. So what that means is that there's a very slow seep of water through the ground surface out of Hague Lake into this large aquifer. Um, and so it's really not a limited water situation. So we're drilling, we will, and we haven't drilled a, a well on Rainbow Ridge, but we drilled a, a well on uh, the Seniors Village as part of the new project uh, we would drill, you know, deep down into that aquifer that's really abundant, uh, and that's the water we'll use. So that that means then that we're not going to have an impact on 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 neighbors because we're we're drawing from a, a very abundant source. Um, when it comes to the um, septic or the sewer system, we're looking at putting in an advanced type two system, um, and so under the provincial regulations you can have a septic system up to a certain size before you get into a more like community-based sewer solution. So that's part of one of our, you know, limiting factors for development in a rural area is, is you know, because there isn't a common sewer system in, in Manson's Landing, and I think no expectation that there will be anytime soon. Um, you know, we're building and managing our own septic system. Uh, a type two system, you know, uh, has a component of a treatment within a, uh, like a treatment media or in tanks. Um, and so we're investing in that system. It's actually a very similar system at the co-op already. So that kind of system. And then we'll, we'll design it, really manage it for optimization, not only of removing those sort of human um, kind of illness-causing bacteria, but also getting rid of uh, the nutrients as much as possible out of the system. Um, and then secondarily, after that treatment happens in that tank environment, then the the wastewater... Um, that has been treated then goes into the ground and it, it you know has a sort of an additional uh, polishing that happens in the you know in the soils and so so part of the provincial regulations the sewerage regulations are around how much area do you need for a certain amount of wastewater um, and what kind of soils you need and so we've been doing some work with a, a wastewater engineer Ron McMurtry to make sure that we're locating our septic system in the place where the soils can handle it and that and it is big enough to meet those regulations um, and then additionally um, we're looking uh, at how might we integrate um, down kind of downhill of that it ways to capture both you know some of those groundwater flows from the septic field but as well just rainwater coming off our paths and roofs um, into uh, a treatment wetland to further clean the water so that, you know, by the time our wastewater hits Hague Lake, it has removed, if not all the nutrients, almost all the nutrients that, that we've put into the ground. That was Ian Scott that you are listening to, development consultant for Cortez Community Housing. 
We also have in the studio with us Sandra Wood, the housing coordinator for Cortez Community Housing. This is all as part of a series that we are doing on Folk U Radio in conjunction with Cortez Currents called Finding Home. And in this episode, we are particularly looking at what it takes to create affordable year-round housing options here on Cortez. You are listening to Folk U Radio. I am your host, Manda O'Fox Gillespie, and this is CKTZ Cortez Community Radio, 89.5 FM, and on the World Wide Web at CortezRadio.ca. So, Sandra, back to you. What We've heard a little bit more about the specifics of these 20 new units of affordable year-round rental housing that we are looking to create on Cortez using funding assistance from BC Housing. We've heard a little bit already from the BC Housing Ministry, uh, BC Housing uh, Office of Municipal Affairs and Housing, oh, that's a mouthful, about um, their fact that they're, for the first time in a long time, making some additional monies available. So my question now is, why why Manson's Landing, and why now? Great questions. Um, first, to address why Manson's Landing, um, for those of who know Cortez, um, you'll know that um, it is more or less our village, village center, as far as the most shops, most services um, that are clustered together in, in a village type of setting. And that includes things like our community hall and um, the co-op, the school, the health center, and um, museum, fire hall, and other really key infrastructure. So <clears throat> because all of those things are within walking distance, it makes it the ideal location to add this housing project so that people can live and walk to the shops and services. Um, Potentially, in the future, once the um, commercial lot that's owned by the Economic Development Association, um, as they develop that, potentially people could have other services available, could be other cafes, other offices, professional spaces, and uh, retail outlets that could be accessible to them on that lot next door as well. So really the official community plan has identified Manson's Landing as the ideal location because it's within walking distance to so many shops and services, and they basically have encouraged us to um, look towards adding residential capacity in this neighborhood. And that's why this parcel of land, this 51 acres, when it came up for sale, why it was so strategic and key for the community to rally and and secure it. And I think the community's done an amazing job as far as um, coming up with loans and cash do- donations that enabled us to purchase that land um, so that it's being held by a nonprofit. Um, held really in trust for this community as opposed to it being owned by 
you know, it could be a, a real estate developer who could have purchased it. And, and we'd be looking at a much different situation where we wouldn't have sort of control over our own destiny and wouldn't have as much input into what really suits us. Um, so I think we've been really fortunate in the timing of securing the land. And um, not only has that been fortuitous, um, but the fact that that both the provincial government and the Canadian government uh, at a federal and provincial level are really focused on trying to help communities like ours um, deal with the affordable housing situation. So there's funding available. And that funding, as Ian said, only comes along once in a while. And I think, you know, we're really lucky that we were able to get a piece of that funding back in 2009 to build the original Seniors Village. Um, a decade later, we succeeded again to expand the Seniors Village. Um, but I know that this funding... Um, will not last forever. And that's why it's been key for us to get in with our applications early as possible in the process because we are competing with every other island and community in BC for those funds. And there is a limited amount of money available each year. And, um, and we're going to make our absolute strongest pitch possible to get our share of that. And it's really important that I think um, people realize that those are our tax dollars at work. You know, it's like Cortesians are paying their property taxes, they're paying their income taxes, they're paying PST and GST and all the luxury taxes. Um, so it's very rare that we get something back for our money here in a remote community. And this is one way to make our tax dollars work for us is by building affordable housing and bringing it back to Cortez. Thank you. That is um, a really interesting point that I'm sure a lot of us uh, taxpayers can really appreciate. Um, so I want to allow, we've got a few more clips to listen to and um, some more questions and good job listeners. We have a couple questions that were sent in ahead of time, but now I also want to allow some questions to come in from you. So if you have questions, we are talking today about what it takes to create housing options in on communities like Cortez rural and isolated. So if you have some questions that you would like us to try to answer for you today, um, we will do our best. Not only can we try to get these questions before Sandra would right now in the studio, but because this is also the first in a three-part series looking at what kind of housing options are available to rural and isolated communities, I can do my best to bring in future guests to speak exactly to the questions that you have. So in order for me to take your questions, we are now going to have a music break on the theme of home. So please do use this time to call in here to CKTZ 89.5 FM, Cortez Community Radio. The number is 250-935-0200. So once again, you may call in and ask your questions. Don't worry, you don't go immediately live on air. You actually talk to 
uh, myself, and then I will relay your question to Sandra, or if it's something that I need to do more research on, then I will uh, take good note of it and try my best to find you an answer. So you may call in to 250-935-0200 and get all of your housing-related questions answered. It's a wonderful opportunity, folks. Uh, Don't let it go. So we'll have about 10 minutes of music while I try to hound you into calling and asking questions. You can also try emailing the letter U at folku, F-O-L-K-U dot C-A. Here you go. Drunk, broke up people's trunk. 
up the John B. sails. See how the mainsail sets. Send for the captain ashore. I want to go home. Oh, let me go home. Please let me go home. Oh, I feel so broken. In my joy, knees in. I'm heading straight for my heart's desire. Gee, it's good to know I'm near the home fire. All of the folks that I love are there. I got a date with my favorite chair. With every step, every hope grows higher. Didn't know how much I missed the home fire. The noises, the TV, the rusty old pipes. The cat always teasing my dog. The neighbors, the quarrels. The screaming of kids For the first time in years I'll sleep like a log Heaven is waiting for me My friend Seven or eight dreams around the bend And if you ever in town Inquire Share the home fire Yes, the noises The TV The rusty old pipes The cat Always teasing my dog neighbors the quarrels the scream of the kids for the first time in years I'll sleep like a log heaven is waiting for me my friend seven or eight dreams around the bend and if you ever in town inquire Share the home fire. We'll be glad to love you back, Rose Apple. Do that to have you share the home fire.
Spread on the bed, and the thoughts fill you. 
Hello, neighbor. You are listening to Folk You Radio. I am your host, Manda O'Fox Gillespie, here on CKTZ 89.5 FM. We are joined in the studio today by Sandra Wood, and we have also had clips from Ian Scott, both staff with the Cortez Community Housing Projects. Um, so we just opened up the phone lines, and before this, I also opened up the email lines, is, is that the way we say it, to get your questions um, answered about this particular project Uh, So I want to um, read this first one. This first question came in from Amy Robertson, and she asks, does the Strathcona Regional District give any weight to rezoning of large properties that want to create rental properties or provide sites for tiny homes? She goes on to say, given the growing trend of tiny homes, are we going to see clear definitions for them and how they can be utilized by landowners that allow them to stay within their zoning? So this was a, a, a big question. And in order to start answering, I reached out today to Strathcona Regional District's Aniko Nelson, who is the Senior Manager community of Community Services with the Strathcona Regional District. So um, this is what she said. She said that the SRD is able to give approval on projects asking for density changes on a case-by-case basis. So it is my understanding, uh, me being Manda O'Fox Gillespie, that this is similar to what Rainbow Ridge and the Seniors Village have had to do. We'll get confirmation from that in a moment from Sandra Wood. Uh, and this is the way that this, the SRD right now can ensure that issues like waste and water and whatnot are being adequately dealt with uh, while working within our existing zoning limitations. The alternative to doing this on a case-by-case basis, from my understanding of talking with Ian Scott and Anako Nelson, is that we could, as a community, decide that we wanted to create areas in our official community plan and then also in our zoning bylaws where we would allow for greater density, perhaps for a purpose such as providing rental or senior housing or some other purpose. Um, and we would do that before the fact. Uh, Ian also pointed out that this would be a way to save costs when nonprofits like the community housing uh, group were to go for um, doing a nonprofit housing that they would save money if they didn't have to try to each time ask for zoning variances. Um, So that is my understanding from talking to them. Anako, who once again, Anako Nelson, the senior manager of community services with the Strathcona Regional District, points out that there are additional challenges with providing zoning in particular for tiny homes, including defining what a tiny home is. Is it mobile or is it on a foundation? Would it be required to meet BC building codes? And if not, how would the health and safety of these homes be regulated? The plan right now for me, your host, Manda O'Fox Gillespie, is to get 
Anako Nelson or another representative from the Strathcona Regional District into the studio so we can get a lot more education and understanding of how planning and zoning could be a tool in our community and other similar rural and isolated communities for creating more housing options. So look forward to more on that in a future episode. I also wanted to turn it over so Sandra Wood could give us a little bit more of an answer from her understanding. Right. So um, I agree with what you've, you've just, the research you've done with Aniko. Um, when we started looking at the fastest way to build affordable housing on Cortez and the, and the way to take advantage of the funding that's available right now, the best way was for us to follow the existing bylaws and the existing official community plan. In other words, go through the rezoning process, come to the community with a specific plan and ask them to approve it so that we could bring this funding into the community and bring this asset into the community as far as affordable rental housing. And and the question of doing tiny homes was definitely brought up early in the discussion. There are a lot of tiny homes that already exist on Cortez, and there are people who are... Subscribe to our podcast series. Visit us at folku.ca. That's F-O-L-K-U dot C-A. Folku is produced at CKTZ 89.5 FM CortezRadio.ca My little brain's almost always got Something lame it's got to say This show is brought to you by the Local Journalism Initiative, the program funded by Heritage Canada and administered through the Community Radio Fund of Canada. It's embarrassing Listening to CKTZ, Cortez Community Radio at 89.5 FM and on the web, CortezRadio.ca, radio that rocks. Hey there, Cortez Radio fans. Looking for a soundtrack to your Thursday afternoon? Tune in to Mixtapes with Jonesy from 4 to 6 p.m. Only on CKTZ 89.5 FM. Quadra Island True Value and Harriet Bay Stores are generous supporters of Cortez Radio. By donating spirit points to 89.5 FM, you help keep us on the air and vibrant in the Discovery Islands. Thank you to True Value and Harriet Bay Stores for your ongoing support through the Spirit Points program. Tune in to Spark Point Music Youth Voices on CKTZ at 4 p.m. on the first or last Monday of each month. Each episode features two original songs that were created by youth here on Cortez Island in our Sparkpoint Music program, accompanied with band interviews. Our final episode is a behind-the-scenes documentary of the entire program, so be sure to tune in each month and support local youth music.
three bells. It's Friday afternoon, and this is time for your three-hour block of rock brought to you by Cortez Community Radio and the end of the road show. I'm here cycling out on the water and in a strange town near you, Highway Hippie, spinning out the tunes this week. Well, it's been quite an adventure sailing out of uh, Harriet Bay last Friday, working my way down the island with stops in Black Creek for an overnighter. Uh, I stopped in Courtney for the day in Comox Harbor, sailed on to Denman Island where I met friends uh, the next morning and floated down the channel before sailing off to Laskiti Island to meet more friends for coffee. Then on to Nanaimo to Piper's Lagoon to meet yet more friends and uh, have a bump in with someone I haven't seen for a year. Shout out to you, Josh, and your girlfriend, Jaw, as well as my friend Landon King. I set off on, uh, what day was it then? Uh, Tuesday afternoon, I uh, set off with fair winds and fair skies, headed for Active Pass, somewhere out in the middle of the channel. Sailing well, things were going good, I had 20 knot winds and some 4 foot seas, my boat was sailing fine, 3.30 in the morning, I hear a bang. I step out to have a look. My roller furling has come off the deck. It's separated. I now have a Genoa sail acting as a parachute, pushing me sideways. I'm completely out of control. I have no motor on my boat. I got myself organized. I got the sail down. I used the halyard from my main to pull down, pull the mast forward. There was nothing holding my mast in the forward position, so I uh, mickey-rigged something, got my mainsail bundled up, and proceeded to bob around in the water. I was within about 10 miles of the reef off Gabriola Island, and I was a little bit worried about that, so I pulled my Zodiac up beside my boat so that I could raft up and use the motor for that. I no sooner got my motor running and got myself pointed in the waves when my Zodiac became swamped from the high seas, and now I had two motors out bobbing around. I had little choice but to call the Coast Guard. Well, my pride has grown back enough that I can say I had a nice ride on the hovercraft as they towed my two boats back into Nanaimo Harbor, where the uh, RCS search and rescue team came out and grabbed my sailboat and Zodiac on their boat. The hovercraft transferred me over and put me on uh, the SARS boat for transport to the dock. Now this next music set is going out to all the guys on the Moitel, the hovercraft out of Vancouver, and uh, this is going out for Jeremy, Einer, Dave, Matt, Dustin, 
and James. Thank you for your services to all us sailors, and especially thank you from me. I'm so grateful that you were able to take me on board. Give me a warm cup of coffee after such a harrowing experience. Uh, thank you for uh, telling me that I had done everything right, uh, safety-wise, with my life gear and my survival suit and all that. Yeah, you guys do a good service, and because of that, this next half hour of music is dedicated to you. This means this radio show is coming all the way from North Vancouver. Steve Sten, uh, Nanaimo, these guys are from all over, and they're working 48-hour shifts. End of the Road Radio says, you guys rock. Thanks for the tunes. And now here's the Beatles for the Hard Day's Night. Yeah, here on your Friday afternoon, End of the Road Show, brought to you by your host, Highway Hippie, wherever I may wander. It's been a hard day's night, and I've been working like a dog. It's been a hard
to our podcast series, visit us at folku.ca. That's F-O-L-K-U dot C-A. Folku is produced at CKTZ 89.5 FM, Cortez Radio dot C-A. My little brain's almost always got something lame it's got to say. This show is brought to you by the Local Journalism Initiative, the program funded by Heritage Canada and administered through the Community Radio Fund of Canada. It's embarrassing.